Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 89 of Hack to Start. This episode features Matthew Hartman, the director of seed investments at Betaworks. Tyler and I wanted to invite Matt onto the show to share his story as an entrepreneur, how he got into tech startups, and what he's currently doing as part of Betaworks. Matt has been building products since he was a teen. After working for a real estate company, Matt left to join a social consumer app called Hot Potato, which was later acquired by Facebook. Matt then founded his own startup, Referred Boost, which was bootstrapped and then licensed to Apartment.com. Today, Matt is the director of Seed Investments at Betaworks, an internet startup studio based in New York City. He joins us to share his story, what it's like to invest at Betaworks, what technologies he's interested in, and why he started podcasting and much more. This is an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So Franco and I are really excited to hear your story and what it was like to have a startup acquired by Facebook and the amazing things that you're doing at Betaworks. But before we dive into that, let's start off by getting to know a bit more about you. Where are you from and what did you study? Uh, I grew up in Maryland, right outside D.C. And in college, I studied cognitive science and computer science. So that's that's kind of this uh, combination of making people think like computers or understanding how people think in the context of computers and also understanding how computers can think in the context of how we know people think. And then computer science was more around just a general interest in programming. I had always programmed growing up. And so I wanted to kind of get a more formal side of that. So how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? I had I have a very distinct memory of being in high school and learning at the time I think it was QBasic was the programming language it was it was like it was in MS DOS you could open up a text based editor create some code and run it in the QBasic runtime and I remember thinking that I could build things on this machine that in my view Bill Gates had created and so that was kind of the start of on the programming side of wanting to make things and I think then that kind of combined with a general interest in, it's almost an interest in people. I was curious what people would be, what problems people ran into and how you can solve them. So I've always approached products and entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship from the perspective of solving a particular problem and how would you solve that person's problem and the product they create scratches that itch. Very cool. And so how did you first get into sort of the tech, you know, or startup scene? What were some of your first jobs? One of my first jobs was I worked at a, before I could drive, I wanted to start delivering, kind of speaking of creating, uh, here, noticing problems. You, we had a community pool and I noticed that parents were having to grab their kids, go out to the, like the local strip mall, grab uh, some food and then bring it back where they had to ask someone to stay. And so I, it was the first time I think I got paid for. I don't know if it was my first job other than you know, making maybe breaking leaves, but I found a friend of mine who had his driver's license and I went to all of the restaurants at the strip mall or a bunch of them 
and got discounts from them and asked them if they wanted to be on this menu that I was going to deliver, I was going to create and, and bring to the pool. So I got about probably, I don't know, half a dozen restaurants to give me something small, 10% off, 15% off of anything on their menu. And then I combined all the menus using probably like Corel Draw or something and printed out a, a one sheet with front and back paper with all the menus from places that I had discounts from. I then went back to the went back to the to the pool and started distributing them and charged people for full food delivery. I think I called it poolside delivery. And that was probably the first thing that I got paid for that was uh, something beyond kind of a raking leaves or or sort of odd job type of thing. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. I love the the use of curl draw. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, I remember I, I always have found a way to kind of incorporate technology, but that was probably the lightest <laughs> the lightest technology that was incorporated, but that was that was kind of my first I guess entrepreneurial experience. I then had a bunch of jobs. I worked at actually one of one of the places that gave us the discount. I, ended, I was a cashier there one summer. I worked my way up to be a waiter sometimes when the other waiters weren't available. And then breaking into technology, I'd always built tech products. I didn't really think about it as as building tech products. I just kind of made made things for their own sake. I didn't share them with a lot of people. I almost viewed it as art projects where I remember I made um, a version of Guess Who on, again, on like QBasic when I was really young, probably 14. And I don't think I even played it with anyone. I just, a friend, a friend and I would want to learn how to do this sort of for its own sake. And it wasn't until later that I built things that I even intended to share with people. So my first thing I had built was when I was in college, I, I did a project where I built a, a adaptive testing platform for my, for my, I was taking a, uh, Hebrew. So I built it for the Hebrew department and I learned, uh, I was taking some language classes. I was taking some computer science classes I thought, and some cognitive science classes. And I thought it would be an interesting mix to be able to do this. And I actually had a test bed of people because I got some classes to say, yes, we'll try it. And so that was kind of the first thing I built. And then I had to kind of break into the tech side. Two things happened. One is I worked for, after college, I joined a company called Trammel Crow, which is a real estate development company. They were big, at the time, the biggest publicly traded real estate development company. I built a technology platform for them. And the thing that I wanted to do is to be able to get my technology actually used in business. That was kind of my goal. And this was an opportunity to do that. We ended up getting acquired by a company called CBRE, uh, which is another big, now the biggest real estate, global real estate company. And the technology platform I built, eventually we turned over to the formal IT group. I was kind of sitting in between hacking at this, this, uh, this MVP is what we would call it now. I don't think that, that terminology existed at the time. And I realized that I, while I liked building things that people were using internally, I really wanted to get into kind of the entrepreneurship, the tech startup side of the business. And so my solution to that was I, I had built some things uh, on the side, but I'd never really done it formally. So I, ha I, I didn't know a lot about business formally, and I went to business school and joined a company called Hot Potato, which was uh, a consumer tech company. And basically what I said to them was, I know how to program so I can come up with some different business you know, marketing initiatives, come up with some product ideas. And so they'd seen some of the things I'd built before, uh, but I can actually build some versions of these things. So everybody at that company knew how to code, even the COO it was a small team. And so it was a very technical team. And so I kind of sold them on my ability to not only be able to implement some of the things, some of the ideas I had, but also to work on anything that they had, they could put in front of me over the summer. And one of the things that ended up, and I guess this maybe goes into the kind of hot potato side, but one of the projects I ended up working on was, was the acquisition by Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. And so on, on that note, like, can you tell us a bit more about like hot potato and the product that you built there and what it was like being acquired by Facebook? 
Yeah, so the I had joined. They, they had, Hot Potato was started by uh, an awesome team of, of entrepreneurs, and they had this notion around connecting people who were doing the same things. And so I had talked to the founder very early on about product, and I think you, you guys talk a lot about hacking your way into some of these jobs. And I think the thing that came across to him was I had a very strong passion around connected networks of people and the different ways that you connect them. And if, this is probably around 2010. I had studied in college this, uh, the original kind of Google, the Google PageRank algorithms. And at the time I was in college, Facebook came out and saw the similarities between everything from PageRank to Facebook structuring data around what friendships were, and then Twitter's one directional arrows. And so I was talking with the Hot Potato sort of very passionately about, or the founders of Hot Potato, about where I saw that going and, and where I saw the opportunities. And one of the places was, was around connecting people, partly connecting people who don't know each other, partly connecting people who are interested in the same thing at any given time. And so the product that Hot Potato was, was building ended up being a... Uh, almost a way to check in at Foursquare, people were talking about checking into physically where you are. And one way to think about hot potato was checking into where your head was at. So what are you, do, what are you doing and what, it, and how can I drop you almost into a, into a conversation with other people who are doing the same thing? And it would be bootstrapped on top of the existing social graphs you have. And one, what I did when I joined was tried to really understand how people were using it. They had just launched a product. And a lot of times when you launch a consumer product, you have these passionate users and, and them explaining back to you the thing that you are building is really helpful because you're sort of so deep in the product that you have the vision of where you want it to go, but you want to understand how to communicate that to people to solve a problem today. And so that was kind of the core product. When we sold the company to, to Facebook, this was at a time, again, in 2010, it was very, or I guess, yeah, the end of 2010, it was very, relatively soon after we had raised the first round of, of financing. And I think that the thing that Facebook was trying to solve, for, again, kind of thinking about solving problems, was they had a really great distribution channel, which was, at the time, 500 million people on Facebook, who, and they were trying to structure data. We are on the other side as a startup trying to get new users and really pushing the edges of how people how people communicated within our platform. And so it was a really uh, good fit in terms of being able to take some of the team in Hot Potato and say, let's solve this against kind of a bigger problem. Now, a couple of people went over to Facebook. People kind of distrib- dispersed uh, into different places. So one, one person ended up going and doing uh, investments. One person uh, started a new company that is now uh, pretty big. And I went back to business school. And then I left after school to start a new company that kind of combined what I learned about Hot Potato and how to get people to click on things and really understand what user behavior was in social, which was still very early, and, uh, and real estate, which was the industry that I come from. That's really cool. There's tons of insights there. So after that experience, I guess you actually ended up going on to found your own company called Referboost. So what is or was Referboost and, and why did you decide to kind of launch that product following your experience with Facebook? Yeah, so I had um, this understanding of the real estate industry and somewhat at the time, especially unique insight to how people were behaving on these social networks. And so what I wanted to do was tackle an area that combined those two things. I didn't have a specific idea. I, I knew I wanted to follow, I wanted to find problems that overlapped and could potentially solve through that. And what I ended up doing was building uh, a tool for property management company to engage their existing, the people who live there on social media, but also more critically to help them gather verified reviews of where they lived. And the reason that was a, an issue, and this turns out to be an issue across a number of industries, is that when you have 
very low repeat purchases. So if you think about an apartment, maybe you rent one once every two years on average. If you buy a car, you buy it once every seven years on average, I think. And there's a handful of industries where uh, that the, the counter to that is you go out to eat every single night. And so a review site like Yelp can enlist people to do multiple reviews and that those people can get reputations on their own. Um, when you look at some of these very low frequency purchase items, the review sites for them tend to be populated with very negative reviews because you don't wake up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to write a review about my apartment. You get really frustrated and you go write a review. And so you can't, there's, it's harder to enlist sort of this group of people who are professional reviewers when they're only going to write one review of every two years. And so what we did was found ways to engage them on social media and to confirm that they lived at this place with their Facebook account and then to get their reviews. And it turns out that pretty much everywhere except for with some exception, uh, except for New York and San Francisco, where the vacancy rates are so low that reviews actually matter less. Most places around the country, uh, they matter a lot. And so I ended up building that business and um, licensing. I, I, I didn't raise any outside capital for it, which uh, we can talk about if that's interesting. I ended up licensing it to apartments.com. And part of the reason I built that was because I wanted to learn how to how to build a profitable business. That was something that was really important to me personally. And in in that context, I had seen one acquisition, been inside one acquisition of a of a, a venture backed company, and I seen lots of things, lots from outside. I'd read a ton about it, and one of the things that was really interesting to me was that the economics look very different if you and the goals look very different if you don't raise money versus if you do. I'll give you a simple example. If you raise money uh, from an outside venture firm at a valuation of $5 million and then you sell your company for $5 million, that is not considered to be a success because the people who invested end up getting their return to their capital. Or if you get an offer for $2 million, then you've actually uh, lost money for your for your investors. And so what was really interesting to me was to, um, the part of the reason I didn't raise money because I wasn't sure how big the business was going to be and I wanted to grow it organically. And we're kind of seeing the, the other side of that right now in the market where a lot of these companies are valued by outside venture firms. And you look at the public markets and the companies that are private are valued very high and the companies that are public right now are very much lower and the kind of trying to figure out why that gap exists and if it's right or if it's wrong is sort of an interesting thing that's come up. But that was one of the things that had led me to, to or interested me in understanding not only businesses that were venture backed, but also businesses that are, are not venture backed. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and kind of touching on that note, I guess, how did you manage to bootstrap it? And what were some of the biggest challenges around creating this 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 new kind of uh, of site around that kind of behavior that you just expressed was a little bit more difficult than uh, a daily review site like Yelp? Sure. So, I mean, again, you guys talk a lot about hacking your way. Hack, hack to start. How do you kind of figure out what that that trick is to get the flywheel going? And for me, I did two things. One is when I first started the business, I moved back home with my parents and coded for six months. And I coded, I worked with a friend of mine and we built three products. And then in in the process, talked to a bunch of people who I knew who were property managers and just kept putting them in front of these people. And we would build as little as humanly possible. And with Referboost, the original kind of inkling of an idea was let's see if we can get your existing residents to share something on Facebook because then we, get a, we can give them an incentive to connect their Facebook accounts. And we built that with almost no technology. I think we sent, we had email addresses of residents. We basically used MailChimp to send something out. We got one property manager to agree to share his email list with us and let us try this experiment. 
And when we did the experiment, it, it worked. People actually shared this thing. And so we got, had to sort of inklings of something. And I spent like, I, I think about six months between coming up with the idea and building some tech and f- kind of building a bunch of other things. We also built a consumer site that told, that we realized very quickly, uh, probably wasn't the right product, but we built it, released it, uh, bought some AdWords against it and, and started to see what some of the problems were. And with the product that did end up working, what happened was I was met with the first customer, the, who had, the person who ended up being the first customer. I said, the way that our contracts work, which was the first contract, um, is that you pay three months up front. And that three months covered my rent. And at that point, I moved out uh, of my parents' apartment. And that first customer covered my rent. And so I said, okay, wait a second. Can I do that again and cover my rent next month? And I started doing that. I kind of turned around and I had a handful of customers. And it was very, I mean, it was truly ramen profitable. It just basically paid my costs. And then, uh, and then as it started to grow, I started to be able to talk to bigger customers and find other angles to revenue. And one of them was, uh, I w- worked with apartments.com first again on a, on a pilot. And we ended up licensing a lot of the technology to apartments.com coming with a good agreement where I was able to make, bring the company to profitability and, and also kind of sharing the revenue. And so that it was, I think almost two years after having started it, but that was kind of the slow process to getting my first customer and then a few customers and then good distribution. I think by the, by the time I had brought it out, I think we had customers in about 35 States and I, I ran that business for a while and ultimately decided to move it to a side business. And we had this, we had this licensing agreement and I was working on it a couple of days a month and supporting existing customers, but had decided that I really wanted to refocus on the consumer tech side of things. And that's when I ended up joining uh, Betaworks and I kind of moved the, uh, move refurbished to become a side business and it generated revenue, which was great, but start to focus on projects that were more interesting to me. So you're currently the director of seed investments at Betaworks. Can you tell us a bit more about Betaworks and how you created the opportunity to work there? Yeah. So, well, it, it was kind of a, an accumulation of all of the things that we, that we had talked about. So I'd moved back to New York and was deciding what to do next and reached out to a few different VC venture capitalists who I knew, uh, who I talked to about various things, a couple investors who had been in, in hot potato uh, about what to do with refer boost, about what to do kind of next, what the cool startups were, what might be interesting given my, my interests. And I had taught one of the people I reached out to was the person who was running seed investments at Betaworks. And he said, I'm actually leaving to start something new and I'm looking to hire my replacement. And I hadn't really thought about doing something on investments full-time before, but some of the people who were associated with Betaworks, Betaworks had been an investor in Hot Potato, and some of the people who were associated with Betaworks had, were now at Betaworks at the time. So I felt like I knew a bunch of people and kind of understood what their DNA was. And so I talked to the team at Betaworks and ended up coming on to work on the seed investment. So at Betaworks, we do two things. We build new companies from scratch. So companies like Giphy and Dots and before that Bitly were all built in-house at Betaworks. And then uh, the second line of business is outside investments. So so we do about 15 to 20 seed stage investments every year. So I started off and I worked very close with our CEO, John Borthwick is the uh, is on the investment team. And it started out, it was uh, he and I were working on it and I was the only person on the investment team. And we've now started to grow the investment team. So now we have uh, someone who's full-time in San Francisco and we have someone uh, who works with me here in, in New York. And we have started, I think we've now done, I think we've, I've made over, I think 25 investments since I've joined. And we, so we're starting to build a portfolio of me and I, I'm starting to build a portfolio. And uh, I also support our investments from before I joined. And so it's been interesting to learn from the entrepreneurs who I just met 
recently, uh, two years ago, and then also to work with early companies like Product Hunt, one of my earlier investments uh, through Betaworks, uh, and grow with them and, and, and learn how we can plug all of these companies together. And the idea with the investments in Betaworks is we focus on consumer tech, but particularly on user-generated content and ecosystems around uh, what we call internally internet-native media. So things that don't that can't exist without the internet, anything from an animated GIF to a podcast and try to find all of the connection points between those companies and to really try to find ways that they can work together so that the value we bring is not only in our experience, but also in the network of companies that we're building and investing in. What does your role involve at Betaworks and how do you go about evaluating a startup that's looking for seed funding? So we do a few things. Sometimes we talk about this as being product first, Team second, geography third. And so if you look at our investments, it reflects that. We met with some great entrepreneurs that are building things that are outside of our wheelhouse. And we're pretty disciplined about sticking to a consistent theme. So like I said before, anything from user-generated content, uh, ecosystems around internet native media, but kind of specifically messaging platforms, uh, things that look like communications platforms, things that are connected APIs, communities of highly engaged uh, highly engaged users that are a bit more vertical. In all those cases, we're investing and building around things we actually use. And so a significant part of our diligence is actually trying out the products, even if they're in the earliest stages, a test flight someone sends, where we, we try to see how their products integrate with our lives. So often we are avid users of the companies we're investing in, even if it's very, very early. And the nice thing about having Although Betaworks' investment team is small, Betaworks as a company, we have about 100 people in our office working on different products. And so we can get people on a social network really quickly and try it out. So whereas normally it might, it might be hard to kind of get your friends to, to try something new, we can immediately get everybody at Betaworks or many people at Betaworks to try something out and to have a network so we actually can start to feel what the subtle differences are between what's out there now and, and the new things that are coming that are coming up. Uh, one example of that is we, we did a, a what we call a pre-seed investment. So it was prior to a, a formal seed round in a company called Anchor, which is an audio social network. And for us, we tried that out and it's, it, it's almost like Twitter or Medium for, uh, for audio. And it was very apparent. Uh, we were into podcasts. We were at a thesis around audio in general. That's part of the reason that I started building, uh, started my podcast is to learn what some of the problems are in the podcasting industry. We can talk about that. But in, with Anchor specifically, we were very interested in audio and started using the product and saw subtle differences between that product and, and a bunch of others and simple things like they made it very, very, con- made a conscious effort on the product to be audio first. And so you can actually use the app for a long period of time without looking at the screen. Very similar to how a podcasting app or a music uh, streaming app would be. You just, you make some decisions, but then you listen for a while. And that's very different than some other products that were out on the market. What are some of the most common mistakes you find or advice that you share with other founders who are looking for seed funding? One of the things that I think people do is attack a very big problem in a very broad way, which is totally fine at first, but then it's important to very quickly focus down on one or two key things that you're trying to accomplish or hypotheses that you're trying to test. And so this is really hard, especially with a network or a marketplace where you have to get multiple constituencies of people. I think it's the thing that seems to consistently work best is to pick a very specific focus of some some hypothesis that you have that if this turns out to be true, 
all of these other things will follow. And then work very hard to do as almost as little as possible to try to as much as possible in a, in a very uh, specific or small solution set to see if you can actually prove your hypothesis right so that you can get the rest of it done. So an example of that uh, might be, I'll use a, a, a Bitly, where they wanted to solve a very specific problem, or Giphy, where they wanted to solve one very specific thing well. If you look at Giphy now, it's it's all over. It's ubiquitous. People do searches for animated GIFs, and Giphy will be the first thing that comes up. Or they'll go into Slack or into GroupMe, and they'll do a search on GIFs, and uh, they'll do a search for a GIF, and Giphy is what powers that. At first, Giphy was trying to solve one specific thing, which is searching for an animated GIF, and that's it. And how do you make that as easy as possible and let that kind of be the North Star? And then solving that very, very systematically. So at first, people had Tumblr blogs with a bunch of GIFs on them. And so they start, those, are the, those are the early adopters of people who, of, of a search engine for animated GIFs. Then they started to say, okay, well, in group chat, that might be interesting. And so they were able to reach out to GroupMe and, and get them on board early. And I think having a very specific use case and just going as focused away as possible after solving that problem is something that seems simple, but is hard to do. And even people who have done it before often forget. I notice it with the products that I built is you have this idea and then you try to solve it too, too broadly and that's fine. And then you kind of are able to whittle it down into the, into the specific solution and then, and then go from there. That's some really good insights. Do you have any awesome stories around pitches or products or startups that you've seen over the years? And are there any ones that stand out um, in particular that are your favorites? The products that, and the pitches, I guess, that are the almost the most compelling are the ones that have data around an emerging behavior. They're the most, they're, to me at least, the most interesting. So I'll give you a, a, an area that we are looking at very closely where I haven't seen a lot of uh, a lot of pitches in this category is conversational interfaces and that can be anything from a text-based uh, bot to an Amazon Alexa app. I think we're in the very earliest stages of that ecosystem developing and those the new products that are going to be big in those categories. I think it's almost like when the iPhone first came out and you're like, "Wow, you have this you have the internet in your hand. What should you what should you do? What can you do now?" And it took a long time to really find compelling use cases that weren't just novel. And I think that we're in the early stages of that. So I think the pitches in that category that are the best are ones that say, hey, look at this thing that we are doing that nobody else is really thinking of yet. Um, you had, uh, I think you had Howdy on, right? Uh, we did. We had, we had uh, Ben on a few weeks back. So one of the things that, that when we tried out that product, and we're an investor there, and it's one of the first conversational interface kind of themes that we invested in. One of the things they, they noticed, I think, very, very smartly was that on Slack, there are things you can do that are that are interesting and they're different than just a back and forth bot. Specifically, the DM in Slack, one of the one of the first howdy bots lets you set a meeting agenda or manage a scrum practice. And you can set the bot up to DM everybody, get their responses, and then send it back into a main Slack channel. That's something that it's kind of a fundamentally different way to think about creating bots is as something that's going to automate. It's, it's obvious to say I'm going to automate a process. It's, different. it's less obvious to say I'm going to use this bot to actually connect a whole bunch of people and do something efficiently for them and bring something back. Now you're starting to see some other companies, I think, think that way. But I think many of the early bots were I'm going to at message Uber and it's going to call me a car. And that's kind of a very one player type of mode. It doesn't necessarily solve a problem better. Uh, so I think that's one of the 
better ways to think about uh, to think about some of these pitches or one of the better pitches that I've seen is, are ones that on the product say everyone's doing it this way. We are doing this in a fundamentally different way. So what do you see this technology going in the next couple of years? I think it's really exciting. We are very, very early in what I view as kind of a fundamental shift away from graphic user interfaces into a different type of conversational interface. And I see it, I see the things like the Echo or the Amazon Alexa platform as being one early sign, like a canary in the coal mine about, uh, I guess, or a, or a positive canary, that there are really great user experiences that can be fully audio. And you then don't even need to look at your phone anymore for certain things. And the, the, the gap that we have right now is our ability as programmers to understand what people are saying, not only natural language process, but also understand intent. And I think that that's the big gap right now is we have a bunch of conversational interfaces that are pretending to be AI, but they're really not. And as the AI gets better and the conversational interfaces become more ubiquitous, I think those two things combine to, to create really interesting bots that can, and, and services that can just exist wherever you happen to be. And your kind of profile is almost in the cloud. And I think that's that's a really exciting place. What's next for Betaworks in the upcoming months? You know, we're, we continue to do what we, what we always do, which is in a way do the same thing, which is build and invest in a way, always doing different things, kind of pushing where the next layer of user interfaces are going to be. And so I think as I, as I kind of, this is, I think, reflected in, in the things that I've talked about um, or the things that I probably maybe sound the most excited about. If you look back at Betaworks six years ago, there was a f- focus on real-time social media, whether that was an investment in Twitter, whether it was uh, TweetDeck, Semize, which became Twitter Search, even a company like Bitly, where it was leveraging the uh, the use case of Twitter uh, to make the short to do short links, which Twitter ended up incorporating. I think we see a similar world emerging around these conversational interfaces, where a number of companies and layers in that stack are going to start to develop. And what we want to do is build and invest around that area. And that's not the only area. The other areas we're thinking a lot about are connected APIs. I think if this, then that, which was an investment we made uh, a few years ago, is one early example of a really cool way that people can program without even realizing they're programming. I think that's that's only going to increase. And it even ties together with some of the bot stuff because you can now train these bots to do things that's not so different than programming in a way. So that's the second area. And then the third area, I think that we have consistently focused on over the years are these communities of people. And I think Product Hunt is probably a great recent example of that, where it's as much about the network of people who are coming together on a platform as it is about the technology itself. Those are, those are all uh, really, really exciting and uh, definitely things that, that I'm also interested in in, in generally and, and just seeing where they go. So we'll have to keep an eye on, uh, on all the cool stuff coming out of Betaworks. Yeah, I'm excited about the coming years. Cool. So you're also a fellow podcaster. You mentioned earlier, kind of just to kind of, I guess, do it um, for fun and interest, but also to understand some of the challenges around the space. Um, and so you host your own show called Doing Your Business or, or DYB. So what is it and what really motivated you to create that particular show beyond just the problems with podcasting? So as you said, as you said beyond the problems with podcasting, one of the main reasons I was interested in podcasts in general, uh, where I, I was a podcast fan and, and a consumer of podcasts, we had looked at a bunch, we have a thesis around audio and how a number of things are contributing to this sort of renaissance of podcasts. And 
it occurred to me that one of the best ways for me always to get to understand industry is to do something in that industry. So that was part of the impetus. I was also very excited about it and thought it was interesting, differentiated content marketing at first. So, so that was kind of part of the reason. Then I was deciding what should the podcast be about? And the conversations I have, I have a lot of friends who have started businesses, not only in, in technology, but all across, uh, all across categories. And I ask them similar questions to I ask companies when they're pitching us. I want to understand their business model. I want to understand user acquisition. And what I found when I had these conversations in private was that there is, it's actually not that different from technology. So I'll give you an example. A friend of mine has a, has a wine company called Banshee Wines. And I was talking to him about what I didn't think was the product, but it really is, is product. I was talking about how he's thinking about wine. And he said, what we try to do is figure out what makes somebody uh, pick one wine over another when they're looking at a shelf. And his example was whether there's a screw cap or a cork matters depending on your mindset. There was a wine they had that was called Fiesta and they kind of rebranded it and made it uh, made it a screw cap instead of a cork and they made it a bigger size. And they said, it's a party wine. That's what it's for. And starting to think about their business as a platform and how they grew from, I think the first 200 cases, what their MVP was. And I realized that if I'm interested in these things, maybe other people were too. And so my thought was, even if nobody listens to this podcast, I'll learn a lot about podcasting. And it turned out actually that a whole bunch of people, even in technology, are as interested in the non-technology businesses too. And they see those same parallels. And so a lot of my friends who are programmers, who are, are entrepreneurs in the tech space, were interested to learn how people outside of that world uh, were, were building their businesses. And people who are outside of the technology world building their businesses wanted to hear about how others were getting um, traction and really to get into the weeds. I, I think to me, there is, there's this perception, and, and I fall into it sometimes too, where I see somebody who's successful and you kind of can't imagine them not having been successful. You look at a company like Tumblr or Facebook or Twitter and you say, well, all, that was almost predetermined. It seemed like it would be bad. But then you start to meet these companies as they're starting and watch them go and you realize that they're going through all these different things, uh, all, all these different ups and downs. So my question was, can I talk to people who are successful enough sort of objectively that we can learn, learn positive lessons from them, but that aren't so successful that we can't picture doing it? Like, how did they get this far? And what lessons can we learn from them? They're sort of much more relatable. And so that's why I kind of picked this group of people who are building businesses that we can relate, where we can relate to their products, whether it's something from a wine company, like I said, to a furniture company, but their first customer was the Four Seasons. How do you get, how, like, how do you get the Four Seasons as your first customer or a Broadway show? Like I've only been a consumer of Broadway show. I like them, but what's the business behind that? How do they think about the, the economics? How do those shows come together? And it turns out that there's a whole analysis that you can do around how big the theater should be. And it's really about the risk. And, and he talks about that. Uh, I, I interview a, a, a producer of a Broadway show and talks a lot about the business side of that. Yeah, it's awesome. I've checked a, a few of the episodes out. I haven't caught the Broadway one yet, but I'll have to uh, give it a listen. I I, th I think that's that's a really cool approach to understanding, you know, that that methodology and that process that people have followed to, you know, reach that level of success. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because particularly with companies that are smaller, they're and and they tend to be owned 100% or 50% by the co-founders or 100% by the sole founder, and so they don't have to ask anybody permission to talk about things and. Because they're not venture backed, they're not looking for money. They're just willing to talk about how they feel about their business, and it's a, it's a very real conversation, which is is fun. No one's pitching anyone. They're not pitching the listeners. They're just talking because they like talking about their business, and they don't have to prep for it, which is a lot of fun. The other thing that I'm able to do, uh, which uh, is is an unintended consequence, is 
test out a lot of things around podcasts. So I, I do, I, I used one of our, our products here called Dexter to, I, it sends an SMS message. It takes a phone number and sends it to your, uh, I have it set up to send it to a Slack channel so that I can kind of at scale respond to a bunch of text messages. And I just give the phone number out on my podcast. And I say, call, like, call me. So it, it has a voicemail that I can pick up and include in the next episode. But also if people have questions or if people just have feedback on the, uh, on the episode, they can text me directly. And that's sort of interesting to me as somebody who doesn't have a lot of, you know, I don't have millions of people listening to it. So I can actually handle all the text messages that are coming back. And it creates for me a real connection between me and the audience. And I can hear from people, what did you like about this episode? What didn't? They can talk to me privately. They can tweet at me publicly. And it kind of also lets me test out what it's like to be a podcaster and want that connection with your audience. Because otherwise, I think it's so difficult. Maybe you guys have seen. It's really hard to figure out who's listening to your to your podcast and what they're thinking because it's such a one-way medium right now. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a really cool tool. I might have to uh, check out using Dexter uh, for Hack to Start as well. Um, Matt, before we dive into the next question, I was wondering what tools do you use to collect analytics for your podcast? I'm using Libsyn right now. I picked it because a few other people were using it. I've heard people using are using SoundCloud. And for Libsyn, it posts everywhere. So it posts to SoundCloud also. So I like it for that reason. I think the UI is a little a little tough. I was actually thinking about building some sort of Alexa integration so I could ask I could ask Libsyn what my stats were or it could give me the kind of update once a day. Uh, mm-hmm. on text or something. So I didn't have to go in and look every time, but that's what I use for publishing. My kind of stack is I use GarageBand and a Yeti microphone to do interviews. So I act- I do all my interviews in person right now. And then I publish on Libsyn and my website has, uh, I made my website kind of from, from scratch. It's, it's raw HTML and I host it on Heroku. Oh, that's cool. So besides that, are there any other kind of tools that you uh, like to use or have experimented with? I use almost everything. I try, I try a lot of apps out. I think the things that I've found that are uh, most interesting to me, I use, I use a lot of social media. So I use Snapchat is probably my favorite social product other than Twitter. I am less active on Facebook probably than, than I used to be. I'm less active on Instagram than a lot of people I know. And so, but, but because we invest in social networks, I try to be, try to really understand what the new behaviors are. And so I proactively was trying to use Snapchat. Now I mentioned earlier, we have an investment in a company called Anchor. I use that a lot, um, which is a fascinating way to connect with people over audio. On the productivity side, I'm kind of a productivity tool geek. And so I try lots of things in that category too. I don't just say this because uh, this company is at Betaworks. Uh, I use Instapaper every single day. And the thing that I use, and this is kind of like my life hack. I wrote a blog post about this a while ago. I So Instapaper lets you save any website to the app and then you can read it later. So it's a read it later app. And one of the features they have that's not that well known is the ability for the Siri voice to read the article to you. Now, if you don't like the Siri voice, it's may, it may not be for you. But for me, I find that when I'm walking around, I can listen to the articles and I can listen to 2x speed. And so I actually get through almost every week, I get through almost six hours worth of reading just by commuting back and forth and listening for 30 minutes there and back. And so uh, that's one productivity tool that I find really adds to my, adds to my day. It takes out a lot of reading and I can do it in a different, a different, a different time, kind of time shifting reading to walking where you normally wouldn't be able to use an app, but because you're listening to it, you can. What, what I have to ask you, since I spend all my time sort of building and investing and using, using these apps, what, what are you using? What tools are you using that are, that are really exciting? 
Um, I think for like podcasting sciences, we use Call Recorder to uh, record the audio. And I think that's, uh, it's an amazing tool. As soon as you open up Skype, um, you press record and the three audio feeds come together and, and download as one. So I think as far as uh, being able to, you know, get on a phone with, uh, you know, several people and record an audio. It's amazing. Um, besides that, I'm a product designer. So today I downloaded Adobe's new user experience uh, application, the one that's they're competing against Sketch. Really interesting. It's uh, it's cool to see where Adobe is heading with uh, product design uh, tools. And besides that, I mean, you know, your classic, your Sketch, your, your Skype, um, Spotify. Say, hey, Franco, is there any new tools that you've, uh, that you've downloaded lately? Yeah, I mean, so I've been playing around a lot with uh, Anchor actually over the over the past couple of weeks. Um, we just had Elise, um, whose episode is actually going to come out very soon from from iGroove. Um, so iGroove is uh, is some pretty cool video technology, sort of like Snapchat and and, uh, and Instagram together, I guess, if that makes any sense. Um, Nuzzle, which I really, really like, Intercom's mobile app is really awesome. Elise also mentioned sort of Byte, B Y T E. I've been playing around with that a lot. Um, it sort of reminds me of like a mobile version of Tumblr. I love Hype Machine, probably use it every day. And also Gyroscope. I don't know if you've had a chance to uh, check that out, Matt. Um, but it's sort of like a dashboard for a bunch of fitness apps. So like HealthKit or Fitbit or Moves. But they do some really amazing stuff with uh, Facebook's React, just in terms of the visualizations and the flow of the app. It's pretty early stage, but it's really, really cool. Those are great. Those are great suggestions. And actually, we should we should do... Uh, a Q and A afterwards. Once the episode comes out, we could do the we could do a Q and A on Anchor if you guys are both on it. Absolutely. And if people have any follow up questions. I think uh, Byte you mentioned. I, I think that app is really interesting. I use it to make if I need to make an animated GIF that's sort of a flyer to put on Instagram or Facebook. I make it in Byte and then I share it from there because I feel like the creation tools on mobile. Uh, it's one of the best creation tools on mobile that I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. So do you have any recommendations on great content that you've come across lately, either book, video, or blog post? I'll tell you what book I'm reading right now that I love, but a lot of people have already read it, uh, is, is called The Golden Compass. I became really interested in this after reading Ready Player One, which is sort of around virtual reality, and another book called Ender's Game, which is also kind of around sort of virtual reality. And I kind of, I, I've been interested in reading books that are somewhat fantasy or sci-fi focused that have some relation to products that are being built now. And in Golden Compass, for me, because I've been so interested in these bots that are acting on your behalf and kind of interacting with you, there's these no, this notion of daemons in Golden Compass where people have a relationship with them, but other people also have relationships with other people's daemons. And I think there's a lot of analogies to some of the products being built right now. So I'm really, I'm really a fan of, uh, fan of doing that. Hmm, that's interesting. I read that book a long, long time ago as a as a kid, and then I think there's a movie of it as well. You know, I, you're not the first person to tell me that I'm reading sort of young adult fiction. Or no, uh, no, or I, I didn't mean it like that. I, <laughs> I meant like I almost forgot about it. Yeah, it's it, it's a good book. I had I had not come across it. It's been referenced a few times. I do. I, I'm I'm catching up on a bunch of books that are on my bookshelf. I do like to read physical copies of books when I can. I don't know. Do you all read on the Kindle or are you reading on your Mobile device? Yeah, it's a mix of everything for me. Audio, Kindle, uh, cell phone, iPhone, I guess, iBooks, and uh, and physical books as well. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm into the physical books right now, but also audio books. I just moved to Toronto from Ottawa, so as I'm commuting home every other month, uh, it's it's good to kind of just listen to books versus the radio. Yeah, I haven't tried I haven't tried Audible yet, but I'm, I, I want to. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is the speed at which news travels and whether news 
needs to be read every day in a way. I think there's certain things that are important every single day and then certain things that are happen once a week. I read uh, on the on the content side, I read The Economist, which is only published once a week. And what I noticed was that if I, if I if they wait till the end of the week to publish something and are actually thoughtful about it, it ends up being just as valuable as having read the head, read news events as they unfolded because you actually get a little bit of analysis around it. So I enjoy that. I look for other types of products like that. I think the information, which is a a kind of technology industry publication, has that kind of feel where it's deep reporting about specific topics. And so I really enjoy that. I've been reading a ton on Medium and publishing, not that frequently, but I find that the Medium, it's content that the people are creating and publishing on Medium is is pretty good. On t- you know, I watch lots of different TV shows on, on Netflix and I have trouble keeping up with these series that are now so long that they feel like they never end. I kind of feel like now that people, now that the producers have under- understand that we binge on things, they string things out for a long period of time, maybe on purpose and it, it makes sense, or maybe just for its own sake, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And chatting about news, I guess one more app that I'd add is uh, playing around with Quartz's mobile app where you kind of text and get the news, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you use it? I, yeah. So I, I mean, I obviously like when it came out, like everyone else was checking it out and, and I sort of remember it every other day or something like that. Like it, it's interesting. I don't think I would go, I don't think I usually go past like three or four stories and then I'm kind of like, okay, that that's interesting. I think it would be more interesting and I'm sure that's where they want to get to is if eventually it just pushes to you a bit more, like maybe an iMessage or something somehow. Um, although I think Apple makes it hard to link between apps, but that, that could be interesting. I think that app is, is super interesting because it, it kind of ties in with what I was talking about earlier around conversational interfaces. That app is ju- is an app, and so technically they could have done anything. But if you look at Kick Messenger, uh, I think it's Kick or Telegram. I think it, it might be Telegram. One of the things you can do when you have these back and forth messages on it actually may be Telegram on Telegram is that you can send the you can change what choices appear on the user's keyboard. And that actually the combination of sending somebody a message and then giving them a potential response looks a lot like what the Quartz app has done. They're, I think they're, learned, they're taking a lot from this notion of, I want to give you feedback on what you just sent me in a way that's kind of conversational. So you, it, it, it pushes you like a text message, it hits your notifications layer, and you can kind of either dig in deeper or get new things. And, and that feedback ends up being uh, really useful in terms of making it feel like a very personalized experience but also a very flexible experience because courts can decide they want to want to send you one of four different articles and give you a handful of different potential gestures. And they can do that. And I think, I I think that they were made some brave design decisions and uh, if philosophically, I think it's really interesting. I'm curious to see whether people want to be able to pull the news. There are so many different places right now that are vying for our attention that thinking to yourself, I wonder, I wonder what's on courts right now might not, lead to a poll, but because they can push notify and you can see the headline right in your, in your push notification, that might actually bring people back in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what's been drawing me back in. And that's kind of, like I said, you know, you sort of forget about it until you see the next one, because exactly you're not thinking, Oh, I better go check what's on courts right now. But I mean, good on them for doing something so cool and so different. I think we're going to, I think this is the, the early side of seeing a lot of new interfaces that I don't know if they will look just like that, but they will be inspired by similar things that inspire the Quartz interface. That's awesome. So do you have any last thoughts or any personal models that you live by and you think other people should know about? You know, I don't know if I have any massively insightful parting words. I think the thing that drives us at Betaworks and that drives me personally is 
building and making kind of for its own sake. I think that if you uh, were to spy on some of the people uh, at Betaworks uh, over the weekend or on some late nights, you would find them coding new apps. We were sitting here last Tuesday learning how to make Alexa apps just because it seemed like it'd be fun. And I think that that is... That's where sort of the interesting things get discovered. Even if the thing that you make doesn't end up being the right thing, if you keep working on different ways to solve similar types of problems, I find that that's the way that people most often iterate towards the best solution. It's very easy to look at the final result and say, wow, that's, you must have just divined that. And I think most of the time it's people building things, putting them out there, and then understanding how people are interacting with them and pruning them away that end up with what looks like it was uh, maybe an overnight uh, stroke of genius. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show, man. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. People can text me at 646-779-1234. And if they use the hashtag HTS at the beginning, like hack to start, um, then I'll know that we're texting because they listened to this episode. And so we can talk about uh, this particular episode right in text. Cool. That's awesome. Well, thanks again. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Hack to Start, and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.